Welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show. My name is Zach Adams, and I pastor a church located just outside of Athens, Georgia. The name of the church is Calvary 316. If you're local, uh, check us out. Our church website is calvary316.com, and our church service is on Sunday at 10.30 a.m. I do hope that you stay with me over the next hour or so as we seek to deconstruct the negative perceptions that the world has of Christians by boldly and brashly discussing today's relevant topics in an honest and genuine way. We have a guest with us today. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy today's episode, so don't go anywhere. One of the most important aspects of the Outlaw Radio Show is my desire to connect with you, the listening audience. And what that means is that if you have any questions or you hear something, you want to challenge uh, you hear something on the show, you want to challenge it, or let's just say you want to submit a topic that you're interested in that you would want me to talk about. Literally nothing is off limits. There are several ways that you can reach us. First, email, good old email, info at outlawradio.org is our email address. Once again, that's info at outlawradio.org. Uh, we're also on Facebook. Uh, you can find us on uh, facebook.com slash Outlaw. Uh, like us, follow us. If you're into Twitter, our handle is radio underscore outlaw. So it's very easy for you to find us on Twitter as well. If you want to call us, our phone number is 678-883-3316. If you do call, please leave a pithy voicemail and we might just play it on the air. I'd like to welcome one of the two authors to a radical new book titled The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. Kyle Strubel, welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show. Hey, Zach. Thanks so much for having me. Now, before we get to the book, um, most of the audience probably has no idea who you are. Could you just take a few minutes and just kind of explain who you are, what you do, your family, whatnot? Yeah. Uh, my name is Kyle Strobel. Um, I have two little kids, uh, my wife Kelly and uh, I have a little five-year-old and a seven-year-old, so I'm in the midst of the fullness of life that is, that is young children. Um, I am a, a professor at Biola University at our seminary, Talbot School of Theology. And I teach a variety of things, um, most of which revolve around what does it mean to grow as a Christian? What does it mean to be being shaped in the image of Christ by the Spirit? And so that is a... Um, in, in many ways, such a, a huge gift. It's an overwhelming gift <laughs> because there's so much there. But um, that is, is where I'm at now. I um, grew up in the Midwest, and so I'm now in Southern California, which is both a blessing and a curse. It's really hot and dry. <laughs> I, I miss the snow. Um, you miss the snow of all things. I do. I love the snow, and we obviously never get it, although we have mountains close, so well, what we call mountains. <laughs> Now, the topic we're going to discuss today, the book we're going to discuss, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, um, is not the only book that you've written. Could you tell the audience a little bit more about some of the other works? Sure, yeah. Well, when I was working on my PhD, I was trying to discover who would be a good person to write on. Usually when you do PhDs in theology, you choose a person, and I I didn't know what I wanted, who I wanted to focus on. And my supervisor at the time said, hey, you know, I know you're really interested in, like, theology that isn't just dry and dusty and kind of um, getting all our beliefs straight, but something that's really lived and embodied and spiritually deep and rich and transformative. And so he said, well, why not Jonathan Edwards? And I thought to myself, Jonathan Edwards? Like, what are you talking about? Like, why in the world? <laughs> 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 um, 
And but I, I picked it up and he was right. I, I, I really didn't have a background on the Puritans and I took what most of us probably presuppose about them. Um that they are kind of a, a bunch of killjoys who, <laughs> you know, um had a lot of rules, theoretical, and I discovered something entirely different there. And so one of my first I do write academic books, but one of my one of my first kind of more popular level books is a book called Form for the Glory of God, which it focuses on Edwards, but really it's trying to give an account of the Christian life through a Puritan lens and say, you know, we're, we're called to do all these things, read our Bibles, go to church, we're called to pray, we're called to, and what actually, what role do those things have in our formation? Like, do these things form us? Because uh, that feels like it could be in my own power. Like, how does that work? And what is grace on all of this? And, and, and so that book really tries to articulate those things and then, Jamin, my um, best friend and co-author for The Way of the Dragon, The Way of the Lamb, he and I wrote a book that really is the preceding book to that one called Beloved Dust. And that book tries to really give an account of, at the bottom, what is the Christian life about? Like, if we were going to really narrow it down, like, what does it mean um, to follow Jesus in this world? And so, in, in many ways, The Way of the Dragon, The Way of the Lamb is actually a sequel to that book. Interesting. Now, there is no question... Uh, as you read through The Way of the Dragon, The Way of the Lamb, that you and your co-author have a, a unique and special relationship. How long have you guys known each other? Yeah, it goes back. Well, I think we first met in 2000, so 18 years now. And then pretty quickly we became close, and we ended up doing seminary together. Uh, he's a bit younger than me, so when I first started seminary, he was still doing his undergraduate degree at Biola. And, you know, we've, we've walked through all the big kind of adulty sorts of stuff. You know, we've, we've walked through, we're both in each other's marriage, both each other's weddings. We have, you know, I was the only friend at the hospital when he had his first baby and I was one of the first people to hold um, his daughter. Um, we've gone through, you know, job loss and unemployment. Both of us have had seasons after graduation of, of struggling to find positions and We've walked through those things together and then writing together, which has been a real gift. And he, you know, Jamin and I are both, we're both academically and pastorally inclined. And so I feel like he is my pastoral counterpart and I'm his academic counterpart. We're both pastoral and we're both academics. He's doing a PhD on the side as a pastor. I'm, I'm kind of preaching team, so I preach monthly at my church, but I'm an academic. And so we, we kind of, you know, we relate well because we share the same kind of inclinations in terms of our ministry and in terms of what we think the Lord has called us to. One of the things that I found uh, fascinating, and this is more of a macro perspective of the book without getting into the particulars, but how, how you guys were able to write separately, but at the same time, just throughout the book, you, you were able to maintain just the same voice. Like When you guys decided to do this project... Like, how did that writing style, that strategy, how did that develop? Was it hard? Had you guys, I think you already answered this, but you've co-authored before, so this wasn't totally. Yeah. Well, and that was the big one. I think we, when we wrote Beloved Dust together, we didn't, we didn't probably have our full stride down quite yet. And I think what, you know, really what it was, because I've co-written other books, I've co-written academic things, I've, and this is very unique, because what I can do with Jamin is when he sends me something, I will just delete part of it and rewrite it. And when I send him something, he'll <laughs> he'll put his story in the middle. Of it. And and you know we we're just the kinds of friends now where we don't we trust each other. 
we don't need to ask permission, and we trust that if someone's going to make a decision on these things, that there's a good reason for it. And we both bring a different set of lenses, even though we're very similar, and so different set of worries and things. And um, it really was, you know, Jamin and I, for both of these, for, for Beloved Dust, we decided, and I don't know how much you know about how the publishing industry works, but typically if you sign a publishing contract, the publisher wants the book within six months. Well, most authors haven't, have only written one chapter at that point, which means you've got to write most of a book in six months. Well, I'm convinced that's just not a good way to write a book, um, particularly on a book that is really struggling with deep questions. And so we wrote the entirety of Beloved Dust before we ever talked to anyone about it. And even before we were writing Beloved Dust, we were going on the interviews that we had, that we talk about in The Way of the Dragon, The Way of the Lamb. And Interesting. Seven-year, I think it was a six, seven-year project where we, we 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 didn't want to take the book where we wanted it to go. We really wanted to be open to what the Lord had for us. And in many ways, that book is really our own journey of wrestling with Scripture and wrestling with the way of Jesus. And so we grew along the way, but also just because of our friendship, we're able to trust each other in those kinds of ways, which is, it's been really neat to see. Because in many ways, it's neither of our voices. <laughs> because it's both of our voices that have morphed into something new. Well, I think uh, that actually takes a lot of the pressure off of me because in, in crafting some questions from the book and including some quotes, I, I gave up about halfway through like figuring out which one of you was actually writing at the time. And so since you, since you, since it's neither of your voices, uh, you can speak for each other and, um, and, and that's liberating. Let, let's get to, let's get to the particulars. The, this book, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, you have it subtitled, Searching for Jesus' Path of Power and a Church that Has Abandoned It. Um, I conducted a little interesting exercise with a group of friends um, where, where I asked them, what is this book about by just reading the front and back cover? And <laughs> no one got anywhere close. Like, in, Admittedly, like the, the subtitle is is vague, and so... Um, could you just take a minute or so and, and summarize the overarching premise of this book? Sure, sure. Ultimately, you know, we were hoping that people would assume it was a Bruce Lee bio. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so the book is, is about power at the end of the day. Everything we do, no matter who we are, is built on our view of power. And Jamin and I, when we went into seminary, came to realize that both of us had, had been trying to fuel our ministry, our praise, our worship, our devotion out of a view of power that was secular and worldly rather than deeply Christian. And so we, we wrestle with the nature of Christian power. And in particularly, I mean, if you're going to pick a verse, like if you're going to say, what is this book of meditation on? It's a meditation on 2 Corinthians 12. You know, Paul lists from 11.16 to right around 12.8. He lists this litany of things he'd gone through, the sufferings, as he's boasting as a fool, he says, you know, against the super apostles the Corinthians were grabbing onto, these kind of gurus that, that the Corinthian church was always susceptible to. And Jesus, you know, shows up on the scene, interestingly enough, when Paul asks that this thorn in the flesh be taken away from him. We're not sure what the thorn is. We're not even sure where it comes from. It's a messenger of Satan, but it, it almost like, it's like a Job scenario, because God's clearly kind of reigning over it, tells Paul very clearly that the thorn is so that he doesn't become conceited because of the greatness of his revelation that, that he's been given, that he had seen. 
And when Paul asks for the thorn to be taken away, Jesus tells him that my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And the question we had is, okay, you know, I was a high school student. I had that whole section highlighted. It, like, glowed from my Bible, that lesson 16. through I love that section. I didn't get it. I had no idea what it meant. But it sounded good. Hmm. And my worry is that most of us say, oh, yeah, power is a thorn and weakness. When, at the end of the day, I think you can search <laughs> very wide and very far. And by very few Christians that actually think that's true. That actually live their life as if power is found in weakness. And, and we didn't, and that's what we wrestled with. As Jamin and I were both doing degrees in the New Testament, we were looking at these passages going, my goodness, what does this possibly mean for us? And so the book is a journey for us to kind of discern, well, what does Jesus' path of power actually look like? Well, what does it mean to be powerful in the kingdom? And to do so, we realized we couldn't be kind of, it can't be a, a book about us kind of figuring it all out because we don't have a figure. We're, we're still wrestling with this. And so we chose a series of people that we think are sages of the way of Jesus. Not the people that agree with us on everything. That's a theologically very diverse crowd. Our goal was solely people that get that power is found in weakness. And we went and sat at their feet, and each of those interviews pushed us in different directions. And, to, and so the book is about power and weakness, but the, the one interview that shifted directions, and this was totally unexpected for us, like we didn't actually anticipate this, was an interview with a woman named Marva Dawn, and she forced us to grapple with, if you're going to talk about power, you also have to talk about the powers and the principalities. And this actually set us back by several years, because we now weren't, we weren't prepared to wrestle with those questions. Actually, I wasn't interested in wrestling with those questions. <laughs> but it became very clear we needed to. And so if I could put it all in a statement, as you know, the book is about power that is found in weakness as we bear witness against the powers and the principalities of this age. One of the things that I really appreciated uh, about the book is how much scripture uh, that you guys used. It wasn't, it wasn't one of these things where you were just willy-nilly throwing out your own thoughts, but you, you really almost kind of painstakingly uh, tried to tether everything back to scriptural context to, to the Bible. But, but throughout the book, you, you use two phrases over and over and over again, the way from above and the way from below. First, can you explain what you mean by that? And two, what, what would you say to the criticism that the approach is, is maybe too linear, almost too black and white? Mm. Well, you know, this is what's funny about Scripture in this regard. You know, Scripture always does this. You know, so you, you always have two ways in Scripture. You have the way of wisdom or you have the way of folly. You have the way of the world or the way of the kingdom. You have the flesh or you have the spirit. Like, we're constantly confronted with the two ways. And in James 3, we discover a different two ways. It's the way from above or the way from below. And the way from above is the way of Jesus, is the way that kind of comes down from above. And the way from below, James calls earthly unspiritual and demonic, what we have come to call in the church the way of the world, the flesh, and the devil. What was interesting is, you know, as we were wrestling with power and weakness, we came across this verse, we were meditating on James, and it, it really struck us that, wow, you know, these, this really is the three spheres of evil. And one of the things, a couple of things that hit us about that. The first was that, you know, once you add the demonic on there, that takes a different tone. <laughs> like, world flesh, oh, okay, yes, there's devil. Okay, wait a second. So 
the way of the flesh is actually sharing the same power system as the way of the devil. It's a profound thought, yeah. Yeah, and that's exactly what Jesus says in Mark 8. Right? When Peter gets rebuked because he has no interest in the cross, he calls him Satan. Jesus calls Peter Satan. And it says he has set his way, his mind in the ways of man. But that's disconcerting. The second thing that was disconcerting, probably more disconcerting if I'm honest, it's like, okay, world flesh devil, bad stuff, so anger, rage, genocide, I don't know, big things, you know. The two attributes that James gives is selfish ambition and jealousy. Mm. And he says, you find those, you will find every evil. And suddenly this hit the ground in a very profound way. And as we, as we really sat, and we sat with this for a long time, him and I wrestling through it together, one of the things we realized in our experiences as evangelicals, growing up in the evangelical church, being in ministry, doing all these things, is that for ourselves and for everyone we knew, we focus on one, maybe two of these, but never all three. And that, we, we kind of tend to see like, wow, there's, we're all kind of tilting towards what we think is the problem, and it's, it's never big enough. Mm. And so part of what we wanted to do in the book is to show how, how kind of universal this problem is. And, and you know, one of the things that does, I think, is it really helps us to see how profound the cross was. That, you know, I, I, I'm coming from my circles, growing up in evangelism. For me, it was the flesh with the problem primarily. Your personal sin, you got to deal with it. Got to get it figured out. You got to kind of, you know, you got accountability. Groups, you know, and great, yes, we need to deal with those things. But I, I, I didn't think of the demonic and like the, what we, or the worldly powers and the principalities, what, we, what Paul would call like the thrones or the rulers, dominions, right? When we get a mix of both personal agents and the demonic, but as well as non-personal, a throne is an interesting sort of thing, right? The throne isn't personal. It gives power to personal agents, but it isn't itself a personal agent, right? So there's these, there's these kind of, it seems like what, is, what Christ has done in, in the creation of the world is that he's ingrained the world with these systems, at least capacities, that should have been for the sake of his kingdom. And, and now they're fallen. And so now we can tap into these fallen systems. And, you know, it, it struck us that while we, we really have to have an account that covers the full range of these things, and yet that's going, so, so that's the way the, you know, way from above is the way of Jesus, the way from below, world flesh devil. In terms of the kind of, is it overly simplistic? You know, one of the things, in one sense, I think, yes, but biblically so, right? The Bible gives us this really harsh kind of divide, but then we have to enter in a nuance of it, right? I mean, we have to recognize that, well, we are in the new age, right? We're out of the old age of Adam. We're in the new age of Christ. Um, Truth. But of yeah. course, we have to put off the old man. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You're in that in-between state where now there will be, which means, and this gets to the heart of the book, which means you are always presented with an option as a Christian. What are you going to do? Are you going to choose the way of the dragon or the way of the lamb? Uh, are you going to preach? And Paul says in First Corinthians that there are some people who preach in a way that undermines the cross. Now, if that's not a humbling statement, it is. I don't it know really what it is, is right? Because presumably that doesn't stop with preaching. Right? This could be Bible study. This could be worship. This could be anything we do. You know, the, the other image, you know, Paul will use sowing to the flesh or sowing to the spirit. You can sow your ministry to the flesh. I mean, to be honest, for me, one of the things that's been incredibly humbling about this book 
is that it came out a year and a half ago. And since then, we have seen unprecedented in my, in my day, in my, in my years, we have seen Christian leaders falling all over the place. All over the place. Bill Heibel recently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, recently, Michael and I grew up at Willow Creek, my former pastor. And I would say all of them to some degree are attached to power. And questions of power. Well, let me let me ask along uh, along that thought. What was it specifically that set you guys on the journey? Or, like, what what started the process of reexamining the idea of power in the context of the modern uh, Christian church that largely has distorted the idea? Like, what what was it specifically that was like, hey, we need to do this. We need to engage on this quest, this journey. You guys allude to it. You talk about it a lot, but you never really get to the the a central matter that kind of forced it. Well, it really was the place that kind of most rubbed us the wrong way as we read the New Testament. (laughs) You know, it was the place that confronted us over and over and over again with, you need to examine your hearts. What are you grabbing onto? Why do you want to go into ministry? How do you view success? And so for us, it was personal. It was us trying to wrestle with Scripture going, I believe Scripture's true, but I don't even know what this means. Like, look around the world. The world doesn't work this way. Power's not found in weakness. <laughs> but then we began thinking, and some of the, this is where we came across some of these figures, is that as we looked at these sages of the faith, I said, well, but that person is powerful. But it's, it, it, has, it makes no sense to call this person powerful in worldly terms. You know, we, we interviewed a guy named Jean Vanier. Here's a guy. He's devoted the entirety of his life to caring for people with disabilities. It was a power, it's a powerful chapter. It really yeah, is. Nothing about that is powerful in a world. Although what's interesting is this guy keeps on getting offered awards and, you know, he's winning these prizes. I mean, people revere him. And so we, we begin to notice that, wow, you know, there's, because we're both on a trajectory. We're, we're trying to think, okay, what do we want to be? You know, we're, we're younger guys, uh, late 30s. I'm, I just turned 40. You know, we're looking into what do we want to be when we're 60 and 70. And we're seeing, you know, like we're seeing people who have become powerful people, let's say in the church, have a powerful in quotes there. So they're, they're known, yeah. they're recognized, they're, and we're going, yeah, but my worry is they haven't, to use the language of Proverbs, they haven't become weighty souls. That somehow being in ministry has actually warped their soul. Wow. And then we looked at some other people, and we said, these people now, something's different here. These people have become weighty. And what's interesting about almost all of them is that they, but many of these people are off the grid. <laughs> they, we had to fly to Montana and drive for a couple hours. We had to drive to Paris and drive for a couple hours in the middle of nowhere. We went to visit Vanier, and no one knew his name in his town. <laughs> it made some wonderful color, though, some very... <laughs> Nice color for the book, for sure. It was incredible. And it's like, but yet we talked to all of them. And, you know, the thing they constantly told us was, you know, yeah, every week or so someone's flying out to talk to me. Like, these guys can't hide. Like, that's what power in the kingdom looks like. If you're powerful in the kingdom, you could try to hide from people and they will find you. Whereas we see people with a platform who whose soul has been warped deeply. And they, they have a platform. They have a lot of people see. But at the end of the day, I, I'm not sure one-on-one that, that people are interested in hearing from them. Because you, you they guys to cultivate a kind of platform personality. 
one of the one of the statements that you guys make that um, hit me the hardest, and I've just been I've been chewing on it, and just from a personal standpoint, would love for you to elaborate. But on page forty, um, once again, I don't know if it was you or your co-author, but but the statement was operating from our own strengths is practicing atheism. Yeah, uh, that's a radical statement. Can you can you unpack that a little? Yeah, well, you know, we used to talk about atheism of the heart. Right, the psalmist talks about the fool says in their hearts that there is no God. So the Bible has no real notion of like explicit atheists. Right? And so there's all these notions of practical atheism, and, and in Scripture, because our power is found in weakness. So right after that, so Second Corinthians twelve nine and ten. Right after that, Paul says, "Therefore I will boast in my weakness, so that the power of God may rest upon me." Actually, the word "rest" there is tabernacle upon me, which of course is not a biblically insignificant word. And right. so the idea is power comes from without. And so if I'm functioning out of my own strength primarily, then I'm functioning as an atheist, even in ministry. And I think the hardest call is the call that most of us have. Most of us are not called, because I think, you know, you look at the spiritual gifts, let's say. And the spiritual gift conversation since the 90s, I think it's been built on the idea that we should primarily minister out of our strength, which I think is a tragedy of that conversation. We're going to get to that. I have a whole line of questioning about spiritual Okay, gifts. yeah, yeah. So, the, I think, but I think the hardest for us is most of us are called into areas where we do have natural strength, and that's the most difficult. It's easy if you're Moses, and you're like, I'm really bad at speaking, and God's like, you're going to be my mouthpiece. <laughs> uh, okay, that's all weakness. But for Paul, for you, for me, like, now this is difficult, because now I've got to wrestle with, okay, if the power of God rests upon me as I embrace my weakness. Weakness is not something to defeat, and strength isn't something to cultivate. Weakness is something to embrace so that I can pr- embrace truly the power of God. Can you give an example with maybe just the, the minute and a half that we have left of, of operating from our strength, practicing atheism, like, like how that manifests? Sure. Well, I think, you know, I, I'm, um, you and I are both preachers. I mean, it's, there's certain of us who have a natural gifting at rhetoric. And this is Paul's example in 1 Corinthians. There are certain people who are just good rhetoricians. They can, they're good on stage. They can get in front of people and captivate them. Atheists can do that just as well as Christians. As a preacher, am I cultivating that? Or am I cultivating a, a preaching that is ultimately a form of my abiding in Christ, of my embracing my weakness, of my in the midst of sermon prep, I'm preaching this weekend, and the sermon prep saying, Lord, I'm very tempted here. Just try to be good. What does it mean to actually try to abide with you even here? As, as, I, as I'm tempted to try to impress these people. And, and that's, that's now a different sort of thing, right? That, that's now an embrace of, of my weaknesses as, I, as, as I'm tempted in various ways towards sinning, even in, in ministry. Whereas a view of worldly power would say those things are irrelevant. The goal is, you know, can you get as many followers? Can you get as many people retweeting? Can you get as many people downloading your sermon as possible? And and yet we discover that that's actually a a kind of practical atheism, even from the pulpit. Man, that really is a challenging thought. Well, you've been listening to the Outlaw Radio Show. Kyle's book is The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. Uh, The easiest place to get it is Amazon.com. Don't go anywhere. Uh, We'll be right back with the second half of our interview. 
Now here's Pastor Zach and co-author of The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, Kyle Strobel. We're back with Kyle Strubble, author, co-author of The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. And Kyle, with the 20 minutes or so we have left, I've got a lot of questions. We're just going to kind of barnstorm it, hit it hard. Great. You guys mentioned early in the book uh, the evangelical industrial complex, which you then define as a grand machine with cultural and economic forces that involves celebrity pastors, networks, conferences, and books. Can you provide an example of what you mean by this within the evangelical community today? And are you specifically calling out what we might refer to as the seeker-friendly church or the attractional church model? Well, let me start with the second one. In a sense, no, that wasn't the, the goal of the book, wasn't to call out a specific kind of church, although in my youth I would have. One of the things that has become very clear to me over the years is that, you know, when I was a seminary student, I was obsessed with what is the silver bullet model of church. What is the way to do it, right? There isn't one. Right? Every single one of them has strengths and weaknesses in, in a Christian sense, let's say. Um, and, you know, there's, and we have to just be honest with those. Um, the, the, the mega churches have a unique set of problems. Um, tiny churches have a unique set of problems, right? And that, that's just true of, of all churches in terms of being faithful. Now, I think the bigger the churches you are, you're going to be more tempted towards certain forms of power, probably. But what, what I find is that those same issues of power are found in small churches as well. Uh, and absolutely. Just, you know, they're just not as obvious to the outsider. And so, in one sense, no, I'm not calling out anyone. In, in terms of the complex, you know, one of the things that, one of the reasons we went in on that is because my friends who are pastors, and of course my co-author is a pastor, you know, pastors are inundated constantly with conferences, with books, with blogs, with podcasts, with magazines, with you name it, every medium saying, if you don't subscribe to us, if you don't come to our conference, if you don't show up to this, if you don't read this, then you're going to be lost and irrelevant. And, you know, there is an entire kind of engine behind this that has really developed um, from what I, what I kind of, what we kind of call the, kind of the, the guru personality cult. Gurus are the, the secular version of a sage. They're the sage minus the wisdom. Biblically, <laughs> they they are a a figure who has wielded their personality to generate a following, and the problem is because we have in many ways secularized all these things. I mean, all these things have broken off of denominations, have broken off. Of, so, like, you have all these freestanding entities out there. And again, I'm not saying any of them are doing, or all of them are doing all bad work, right? There's good stuff coming out of this. The problem is they're driven now by an economy that isn't kind of governed by the truth. It's not governed by what is good, necessarily. It's governed by what sells. And that has created a very dangerous sort of market now, where as long as as long as someone is popular, we assume they should be on stage. We assume their book should be published. Well, that's a perfect it's a perfect transition because you you guys write, and I'm going to read a little section. You say that many evil powers are tempting the church today. Number one is the power of personality. I call that an evil power because many pastors depend on their own personality to attract people. There's no question, and when you read through the book, that you guys are irked by quote 
the rock star pastor, and then you write extensively later about toxic leaders. Um, I, I don't want you to name names, but could you kind of profile what that actually looks like um, in the church today? Yeah, well, you know, this is this was some humbling things to write because you know when we when people found out we were writing this book, we had a barrage of stories that were told to us that literally we couldn't publish because they were so absurd. No one would believe they were true. But these are coming from people that were we know closely and we know they're true. And we were apps and we we include many stories that themselves are horrifying. <laughs> like, right, yeah. No. <laughs> and those don't even scratch the surface. Let me I mean let me use an example that was that was an obvious one. Um and just because it was such a, a well kind of documented one. Okay. When you have a pastor who and I'll leave a name with a little that's almost irrelevant at this point. Um they their church took funds that were earmarked for missions, hundreds of thousands of dollars. They turned that first they used those funds to cheat the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, so we're talking about Mark Driscoll. We can go right there. Yeah, yeah. We can yeah, go there. Yeah. So and so here's a so here's an example of evil power being employed by this. Now it's obviously evil, right? Because now we're, we're unethical even in secular terms now, which is or horrifying. <laughs> right. That we're you know, we're that level. But here's what also strikes me. Here's what I want you to hear. I know how Mark got there, and I could have gotten there too. And to be honest, the, the, the focus of our book, yeah, we want to name the evil out there. You know, we're all little Hoseas in, in, the, in the second Hosea Jesus. And, and the, what I mean by that is, is the church is the prostitute that we have married. Wow. She is not beautiful because she is, is, is lovely in herself. She's beautiful because of the Lord who loves her. And this means our call is to always name evil in the church. And what's gone on at Willow has been so tragic because of leadership that has failed to name evil when they've seen it. We have to name evil in the church. But we never lose hope in the church because, because our hope isn't in people, right? It's not in fallen human beings. It's in Christ. And so we wanted to name evil, but the whole time, Jamie and I also wanted to say, I see this in me. Like, I know those meetings that Driscoll was in. Mark, you know, we, this book is so good. We want to get it out there. It can help people kind of be confronted with the gospel. Yeah, I want that. Well, you know, if you got a New York Times to sell it, you have a larger audience. Well, that'd be good. Well, you know, inch by inch. You know, Jamie and I tell a story of a friend of ours who, um, a dear friend of ours, who became the, 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 the cliche pastor who commits adultery and loses his ministry. Under our noses, this happened. And he walked us through Every little decision of sin he made. Look, I, 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 when I said goodbye to her, I, I waited a second too long as I looked at her. That's where it starts. Huh. And then inch by inch, and this is precisely how demonic powers infiltrate the church. And unfortunately in our day and age where we presuppose, where we kind of judge ministry in secular terms, if you're big, we assume you're good. If you're a savvy preacher, we assume you're wise. If you have excited people in your church, we assume the Spirit's moving. None of these are signs of the kingdom. In your interview with Eugene Peterson, you, you quote him as saying, we have to find ways to cultivate a sense of nobodiness. Mm, yeah. could, you just, could you describe uh, what this sense of nobodiness would really look like uh, in a yeah. pastor or a person? Yeah, well, I mean, it, I mean, it's a little bit of what Jesus tells us about how, kind of seeing others as better than ourselves, I think. 
is, you know, it's, it's very easy. Like, as Eugene tells a great story about when he's on an airplane and sits next to someone and someone asks him what he does. Now, he's a pastor. And instead, he says, I'm an author. <laughs> because he full well knows, one, maybe the guy will continue talking to him. <laughs> but also, he knows how much better it's that. And he decided as he reflected on that moment for the rest of my life, when people ask me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead with, I'm a pastor. Because he said, a pastor to the world is a total nobody. But, of course, the problem that we all know is in certain circles, a pastor is a somebody. And it's very tempting to use our position at a church. For some, maybe it's I'm an elder. For some, maybe it's I'm a worship leader. For some, maybe, maybe it's something in a different sphere. Maybe it's a more kind of in, in, in my job, in, the, in my ministry in the world. It's a, my business business. But wherever it is, there's a temptation to... And this, so let me put this in different terms. The great temptation after the fall, and this is what the temptation of the flesh is, and this is pride, which is the, the sinful autonomy of the self is to construct itself in your own power. In the Spirit, we need to come to realize that without Christ, we can do nothing, which is John 15, 5. But also, Colossians 3, that we need to discover that our lives are hidden with Christ and God. If you want to be you, you have to discover who you are in Christ. That's what it means to cultivate nobodiness. Because now, every person I run into is a person, who they are, their value, their worth, their being judged successful or not, everything is discovered in Christ. And now that is how I must treat them. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free in Christ Jesus. Now you're, you're an academic, nobodiness. That's not actually a word, is it? <laughs> That's not. Yeah. And academics, we love making up words, so it's probably yeah, it's, not. <laughs> it's, <laughs> on, on page 99, you guys pose a really radical question. Uh, you guys write, uh, which of our failures, speaking of the church, today's church, which of our failures were, will form our grandchildren's churches? You mentioned you know, that you have, you have, what is it, three small children? I have two small children. Uh, two small. I've got, I've got a, a six-and-a-half-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old and, and one on the way. So I'm, I'm, I'm chewing on some of the same things that you are. And, uh, and just the question, which of our failures will form our grandchildren's churches? Uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity to answer that question. Yeah. Well, to be honest, I think it's reconciliation, particularly across racial bounds and economic bounds. You know, I, I think, you know, one of the problems, I think, about those two issues is that when you look at the race divide in America, when you look at the economic divide in America, we, you and I have no hope of solving that. Our grandchildren do. Our children may. But they can only insofar as we take steps crossing those divides. And, you know, a lot of this came out of something G.I. Packer said to us in our interview with him. And I, at the time, I was, when I, we interviewed him, I was teaching freshmen at a, at a different university. And he told me, he's like, you know, Kyle, tell your freshmen they should have a 50-year plan to become an elder in their church. <laughs> and I was like, they don't have a two-day plan. <laughs> 50 years. years, right. But I love that because I think in the kingdom, you know, when we think of salvation, it's so easy to think as evangelists, and I think, and that's something good about this, is to think about, like, the moment we were saved. But we also need to think about that God redeems generational lines. He redeems family lines. And I can look and I can see the work he did in my father, which is now bearing fruit in my children. And when it comes to our kind of corporate sinning, um, we need to think about that. And so, you know, I think we... 
we are at a cultural moment right now with the question of power. You know, Jamie and I wrote this book because we genuinely believe, and we still believe, this is the most the most important discussion not being asked in the church today. And we we are we are given a choice right now what we're going to leave to our children, how we respond. To we have a generation now that is that is at an age where we're seeing all these people sixty plus who are going to leave their ministry because of some some form of power mongering. And I'm watching people of that generation who are circling the wagons more, who are being more divisive. I've seen people with major platforms, whose name I won't use because they're such important figures today, who are just lying from their from their um, platforms about other Christians. Do you think we should call them out? I've wrestled with that. I, I'm probably going to soon of one. Um, I think once you're in positions of leadership, you need to be. Um, the problem is the rhetoric today. It's so hard to actually have a redemptive conversation rather than, and that, that, this is what I'm actually literally currently wrestling with right now is how to do this in a way that won't digress into like, you know, some secular form of name calling. Um, and unfortunately as Christians, we are, our, our kind of rhetoric differs not at all from the world. And that, uh, you know, that, this is the kind of things that we need to decide. This is, cannot be left to my children. Like, my children have to have something better than what we have now. But everything they're going to be left is based on the decisions we make today. With the time that we have left, I, I want to revisit a topic uh, that we kind of teased, and that's, that's the topic of spiritual gifts. On page 49, you write, quote, Spiritual gifts are entry points into the way from below. The way we understand it, spiritual gifts are unapologetically about power to control. Could you elaborate on that idea and, and then more specifically explain the, the, the role that spiritual gifts have in the life of not, not just the individual believer, but also the corporate church? Yeah, yeah. So that quote you read there, so we're talking about how the spiritual, spiritual gift conversation has been had since the late 80s and early 90s in the evangelical church. And so what has happened is, in the late 80s, early 90s, oftentimes in um, megachurch areas, you know, this was happening when I was at Willow, is that spiritual gifts were naturalized so that you can, I mean, I, you could say to your two-year-old, oh, I can see their spiritual gifts developing or something like that. And so spiritual gifts basically became things you were good at. And so now, now, notice what has happened, right? Now they're not spiritual gifts at all. It's in, found in the Spirit. The whole point of 1 Corinthians 12, we sit with 1 Corinthians 12 and just listen to the rhythm of it. Paul is being obs almost obsessive about how many times he says the one spirit, the one spirit, the one spirit, the one spirit. These are not found in you. Just like if the power of God is not found in you, but must rest upon you in your weakness, spiritual gifts aren't found in you. Spiritual gifts is actually better translated, actually, in terms of not gifts, actually callings would be a better way to surrender that. And so spiritual gifts are callings where it has nothing to do with your natural abilities. But the conversation that's been had since the late 80s, early 90s, is to take whatever you're good at, your strengths, and to say, well, you're good at this, therefore, to, if we're going to be a savvy church, you should be doing these things. How can we get you into positions to use your strengths? So gotcha. notice that by design, the conversation in spiritual gifts was designed to not let people minister out of weakness. And that is trap. If we're right about the nature of Christian power... We are now tasting the fruit of that. And again, this is one of the things I, I think we're tasting the fruit of in our culture today. Is we're, we're tasting the fruit of, of people who have decided very explicitly never to minister out of their weakness and therefore never to trust in the power that resides outside of them in Christ.
Well, we are, we're running out of time and there's so much more I want to get to. Um, I think it probably a good segue here to the conclusion is on, on, on page 187, you guys write the warning that echoes forth ominously through the ages is that if we fail to repent, Jesus may remove our lampstand, you know, talking about, you know, John, uh, Revelation chapter one. The question we have to wrestle with is if Jesus does remove our lampstand, would we even notice? And, and I, that hit me. I mean, I had to put the book down and just chew on it. But the question I would have for you is what would be the warning signs that Jesus is in the process of removing the lampstand or has removed the lampstand, even though we might be totally ignorant of it? Yeah, well, it, the the sign is, I think, the um, if I could put it in these terms, the economy of power. I mean, if you just think of the lens of power and read the epistles, so here's, here's Paul's writing to the churches. Sit with First Corinthians. I mean, for Paul, not only First Corinthians and Galatians, you have the same issue. You know, all across, the question comes down to what kind of power system is the church functioning? Like, how do you judge success? You know, the Galatians, what are, you know, in the church, to the, to the letter of the Galatians, one of the key questions is, what are the brand marks of Christ? Paul ends the book by saying, I have the brand marks of Christ. You want to know what it looks like to have a mark of Christ on your body? Look at my back. Everywhere I go, I'm whipped. Everywhere I go, I'm stoned. You want to change that to an external mark, namely circumcision, because you're afraid of persecution. This is the problem we face today, is if, if you have churches that have sold their souls to the way from below, to wielding the world, the flesh, and therefore necessarily the demonic for the furthering of the gospel, then it does raise a real question of have we actually found a church there at all? Or have we just constructed secular entities that, that talk a little bit about Jesus, but are more using him? to try to cultivate worldly power to worldly right. And that's a horrifying thought. It is an absolutely horrifying thought. And yet that you guys, and this is one of the things I really appreciated about the book is the challenge, the question, um, in, in a few words or less, if someone's listening to this, they're not quite sold yet about going and buying the book. Uh, tell, tell the audience why this is an important book for really every Christian to read. Yeah. Well, everything we do, it doesn't matter who you are. We've been using mostly church leadership kind of examples. You can be a stay-at-home mom. You can be a lawyer. You get, everything you do is governed by your view of power. And at the end of the day, for both Jamin and I, we, we're not interested in selling books primarily. We're not interested in convincing you we're right primarily. We're interested in starting the conversation. The conversation the church is desperate for that it's not having is what does it mean to truly have kingdom power and live in the way of Jesus. And so if nothing else, we would say read it for the sake of asking that question and just wrestling with it. Because this is what we're going to hand off to our, you know, to our children. You have a very interesting organization website. Uh, could you tell the audience about it? Yeah, so Jamie and I started something called Metamorpha. Um, and Metamorpha, basically we designed it to originally to try to cultivate um, evangelical accounts of the Christian life. Um, I'm a Puritan kind of expert. Um, Jamin focuses on an evangelical theologian. We really want to think with our mothers and fathers in the faith. Um, for me, that's mostly the Puritans, but it's it's more than that. To try to 
to, you know, as Lewis, C.S. Lewis once said, you know, whatever the ancients' problems were, they're not our problems. Right? Whatever their blind spots were, they're not our blind spots. And so we try to cultivate by, by, you know, how can we sit with our mothers and fathers in the faith in a way that reflects back to us things we're missing? Because, I, you know, I, I'm a Jonathan Edwards scholar, and Jonathan Edwards owns slaves. And if, I, I, for the life of me, I can't fathom how he missed the great American evil. And yet, in my, I want to be humble enough to know someone's going to be asking that question about me 100 years from now. Hmm. So they're going to be looking at us saying, how in the world did they miss this? Every generation has it. And so what we need is to, to really cultivate a conversation with our fathers, fathers and mothers of the faith so that we can begin to see. And for us, what people look back at is how did they sell their souls to worldly and fleshly and demonic power in the church. Kyle, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for taking time. Of course, brother. So good to be with you. Well, you've been listening to the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. If you liked what you heard, I encourage you to do two things. First, contact your local radio station and tell them you're thankful they're carrying Outlaw Radio in your community. The second thing is visit our website, outlawradio.org. From the site, you can easily access our podcast, which is available on iTunes and Google Play. You can listen again to this episode in its entirety or all previous episodes. It's very cool. Additionally, check us out on Twitter at radio underscore outlaw. You can send me an email at info at outlawradio.org or follow us on Facebook, The Radio Outlaw. Once again, I'm Zach Adams, and I hope you join me again this time next week for The Outlaw Radio Show. You've been listening to the one and only Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. As mentioned, if you like what you heard, be sure to connect with us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter or check out our website by visiting outlawradio.org. To listen again to today's show, access our daily two-minute broadcast or full-length episodes, check out the Outlaw Radio podcast, available on both iTunes and Google Play. Once again, don't forget, we want to hear from you. If you have questions, want to challenge something that was said, or would like to submit topics you'd like to hear Zach discuss on air, you can either email us at info at outlawradio.org, or you can leave a voicemail at 678-883-3316. Finally, programs like Outlaw Radio are wonderful tools God can use to change lives. But as with any ministry, there are expenses involved. First, if you're not tithing to your local church, you need to do so. And yet, if God has laid it upon your heart to extend your generosity above and beyond your tithe, we'd ask that you prayerfully consider supporting Outlaw Radio. Every donation ensures this show remains on your local station. To learn how you can become a financial partner, please visit outlawradio.org. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you join us again next week for the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. Outlaw Radio is a ministry of Calvary 316 in partnership with his productions.